A good Saturday evening to you. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. And this show is made possible through the support of Transitions Life Care. And representing Transitions Life Care is Cooper Linton. Cooper, good evening to you, sir. Good evening. It's great to be here. It's good to be back. And we've got Nicole Bruno representing Transitions Guiding Lights. Hey, good glad evening, to be Nicole. here today. Ah, you're, you're as chipper as ever, Nicole. I try. You're, you're glowing. <laughs> Am I glowing? I don't know if that's from the paint that you're using to paint your barn, but uh, you you are glowing this evening. I'm looking rather red, am I? (laughs) Out in the sun too much, perhaps? Just a little bit, but you you put in a lot of hard work out on the farm. We do. It's a lot of fun, though. Very relaxing. Well, we've got a great show lined up for you. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Jason Kong, and you're listening to Aging Matters, and uh, this show is uh, is all about the care and comfort that surrounds you, and uh, we, we talk a lot about the caregiving aspect of things. And Cooper, uh, we've we've had so many great guests and so many great topics, and we talk about uh, these services that are provided that are so helpful, but. Uh, if you don't have access to them or if you don't know that they're there, it really doesn't help you that much. It absolutely does not. And there are times we realize we need to bring guests back. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have actually two guests today that are coming on the show for a second time. We just couldn't get enough. That's right. Encore. Uh, well, and there was too much material to cover in one show, realistically. we we You couldn't do this in an hour. Uh, we're being joined in the first part of the show tonight by uh, Linda King. She is the director of community and multicultural. I want to be sure I get this correct. Multicultural health initiatives for the American Heart Association. That's also uh, joined with the American Stroke Association. And it has a long history of working with public health, public access in. Uh, ethnically underserved areas, geographically underserved areas. And we really wanted to have a show today that talks, opens very broadly about access to overall health care and wellness and the reality that race is sometimes a barrier. Ethnicity is a barrier to care, either in reality or perceived. Either way, it causes people to not get what they should. Linda, welcome to the show. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So how did you get into this, Linda? You have a passion for this. Can you share the passion part first? Because I have a feeling it's going to drive a lot of the rest of the show. Absolutely. I always say I came into public health uh, by chance, not by choice. Because um, I always wanted to work in news and communications. Actually, that was like my first degree. and um, But uh, it just came about with me volunteering in the community. And then one day... Uh, I was looking for a position, and it ended up being a position in health. But I did let the health people know that, you know, I'll be here to do your communication part, to increase awareness about this health partnership that came about. It was many years ago. Uh, you guys probably don't know. I haven't heard of it, but it was called Healthy Carolinians. It was a statewide initiative across North Carolina. And so I became, you know, one of the Healthy Carolinians coordinators in Person County. And so that's how it all started for me in public health. And um, one thing that I did learn, and I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, is that it's what people don't know that kills them. So it just came to me one day. What does that mean? Speak to that a little bit more. What people don't know is what kills them. Exactly. Um, So in public health, we do a lot of increasing awareness around health right now. What's coming to mind for me is heart disease and stroke, of course, because that's what I do now. But... um, it's uh, a lot of times they don't know I'm eating unhealthy foods. 
that have things in them that are not good for me. Or, you know, we've gotten away from when I was growing up, we always had garden food and we had vegetables. Everybody had a garden in the community. We don't do that anymore. So nowadays people just don't know a lot about that. And so not knowing a lot about that means that I didn't know fast food wasn't real food. So things like that can come about and they can lead to – you know, health problems. I definitely agree with you. I think knowledge is eroding over time. I mean, I know way less about, we're joking about the farm, but I know way less about gardening and taking care of animals and taking care of property (laughs) than my grandparents did. Exactly. I mean, do you have a sense as to what's going on in society? I mean, it it doesn't really even matter, you know, this aspect of it, you know, what your your racial racial or ethnic background is. I just think we're just not, we don't understand and we don't know what's going on. And we all have to relearn. I mean, you look at a Google or YouTube video to figure out how do I take care of my bees or what's wrong with this piece of squash. But before it was like you knew it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So what's, what do you think? It's more of a fast-paced society Mm -hmm. that we live in today. And so everything happens. Um, I have two millennials, and they tell me all the time, no, it has to happen in so many seconds, or otherwise I don't want it. (laughs) So, you know, we in the health field, I would say we all had to learn to be more connected. Mm -hmm. And I stay connected, like through Facebook, Instagram. Twitter. You got you got to be connected to one to at least find out what's going on nowadays. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to use the internet. So right. you know, many years ago in public health, that's what we started learning how to do. And every um, every program has to have that media component to it. And you're, so you're that's right. a lot of what's going on. You're right. And then, but then when we get, you know, we were just coming off of running two of our four caregiver summits and, you know, we've got it pretty well figured out how to reach a lot of people, but there are certain groups of people, no matter what we do, we feel like we just don't do a good job of reaching because I think some groups of people, you need to use some different methods. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the differences in, in ethnic groups perhaps and how to reach folks and, and different ways that, you know, people can get connected to this information because not everybody's going to want to go on the internet or necessarily will trust that for their information. Oh, absolutely. And in public health, one of the things that we do is we take public health to the people. That is the one thing that I enjoy so much about public health. Um, in my work, I work with churches. That means I go to the church. As soon as I leave here, I'm going to a school that's over, it's off of New Bern Avenue. They're uh, providing a simple, a kid's simple cooking with heart, which is one of our cooking demonstration programs. We're going to provide that to some, some students at that school. So we in public health, we take, um, we take public health to the, to the people. So that means health education. That needs, that means um, anything around health and awareness and fitness, um, we work with churches, community centers, uh, work sites. So taking public health to the people is what definitely is going to make the difference. And the thing I like about it that I like to do nowadays is I like to integrate it into whatever you're doing. You can integrate health in whatever you're doing, but believe it or not nowadays. Um, and so one of the American Heart Association's um, top priorities is to ensure that all Americans have access to health care and um, life-saving information. And so that's why you hear us talk a lot about health disparities and health equity, because we want to make sure we're reaching the communities. Like you mentioned, when it comes to uh, multicultural communities, those are probably communities you're speaking of when you say, hey, no matter what we do, you know, it's still hard to, but you got to think about things like, you know, that access to that 
health care or that event that's going to give them, you know, the, the health care information they need. So it could be a barrier of transportation or, um, you know, income, whatever. So those are some of the things to keep in mind when you're working with these populations and you're trying to reach them. It's kind of like meet them where they are. So if we address transportation, we address education, those issues are particularly challenging in rural areas. And so we have geographic areas where access to care is very challenging because either there's a distance issue or simply the care may not exist in the local community. And as we were talking before the show, that can also overlap with areas of higher minority concentrations. So we have geographic disparities coupled with uh, racial or ethnic disparities. Can you speak to that for a minute? Because I know you've worked in some of those areas, specifically in North Carolina. Right. So when you um, actually are faced with with, uh, working in those communities, the one thing that you have to do is you have to bring together or reach out to other health agencies who are doing health-related work and become a collaborative or coalition, whatever it takes. That's one of the, the key things, key components that you have to do in working in small towns because uh, bringing those agencies together is where you're actually going to make the impact with reaching out to the community and getting, you know, getting the information out if you want to increase awareness, if you want to provide uh, educational opportunities in that community. You, you have to... Um, Bring together a group of partners in that community that can help you actually reach your goal. Our guest this evening is Linda King. She's the Director of Community and Multicultural Health Initiatives for the American Heart Association and as well as the American Stroke Association. And we're going to continue our discussion on community outreach, uh, particularly with focus on minority communities. And we'll do that in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you here on News Radio 680 WPTF. This show is made possible through the support of Transitions Life Care, and you can find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong, Cooper Linton, Nicole Bruno alongside me. Our guest this evening is Linda King. She's the Director of Community and Multicultural Health Initiatives for both the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. And we're having a good discussion on minority outreach and access to care, Cooper. And we've talked about some of these barriers, uh, whether it's uh, geographical, um, but there's there's also some things or, or some things that might stop us from accessing care that, um, you know, just the average person wouldn't normally think about. Well, one of the key drivers in healthcare decisions and there's an enormous amount of market research to support this, that it is uh, what some market analysts call high-felt involvement purchase, meaning that there's a, a lot of emotional connection to decisions related to health care. Well, no kidding. I care about the people I love. That's why I'm a caregiver. That's why I'm involved in this. And, of course, there's a strong emotional component to decisions around care. It's the same for picking out daycare. Uh, it's, it's related to the care of someone you love. And one of the issues that comes up in any high-felt involvement discussion is about trust. Do I trust the people involved? 
Do I trust the advice that I'm getting? Do I trust the intentions of the people that are involved in my care? Um, do I believe that there is some sort of driver in their recommendations other than my best interest? And if that's not satisfied, then we're dealing with an issue of trust. And uh, I, I think we just need to put that out there for discussion this evening. I don't know where you stand on that, Linda, but I'd, <laughs> I'd love to get your insights. <laughs> Absolutely. Trust is, is very important. It is like definitely the key component to working with um, multicultural communities, minority communities. If you don't have that trust, then you almost just can't, you just can't get through the door, almost can't get a foot in the door. So having that person who looks like you to work with that community makes a big difference. Um I'm proud to say, I'm glad to say that I um, am just honored to say that I've been able to work with like pretty much all minorities, communities, Mm -hmm. and um, it includes, you know, Hispanics and Native Americans. And so I had an awesome time working with these communities, learning about their culture, increasing my my knowledge about their culture, as well as, you know, knowing more about the African-American culture. That makes a difference having somebody who, you know, who looks like me who will definitely, you know, know my culture and and things of that nature. If you were going into an African-American community and you said, hey, you know, we're going to do a cooking demo around eggplant. Well, that might not work (laughs) because more than likely (laughs) what they want to hear more is about the collard greens. You know, how to cook those healthy and how to cook uh, other things that they already, you know, like eat or consume. They want to hear more about that and how to cook that healthy rather than to change what it is that I'm doing. But somebody who actually knows about that particular community definitely will know that. Um, also, the trust issue is around other leaders in the community, for example, pastors you know, in minority communities. Pastors, working with pastors is huge. I once had a physician who um, her husband was a pastor, and she said members would come to the church and say, you know, oh, my doctor just told me I have diabetes, high blood pressure. What do you think I, I should do? <laughs> and she said, as a physician, I'm going like, do what your doctor said, not what, the, you know, and the pastor's her husband. So this is she, not a spiritual care <laughs> exactly, issue. This, is, this exactly, is a diabetes issue. Exactly. So she said she always had that struggle with people um, approaching her, her husband, who's a pastor, about their health conditions. But having you know, key leaders in the community like that can always get you into those communities. And and my working with um, Hispanic communities and, and Native American communities, I've always had liaisons who I work with, and it's just a, an awesome partnership to do that. I think you're also touching on an interesting piece, which is the component of faith in people's lives. Yes. And we often talk about illness and we talk about the human body, but we are all people who, depending on what our background is, we have a belief in something. Not everybody has a, a faith belief, right. but it's pretty common. It's pretty common. It is. And it is. it's hard to separate the faith belief from the physical nature of, of people's bodies. I know in our work in hospice and palliative care, we have spiritual counselors that are involved in care, and it's because of that. And so it sounds like that has been a, a part of your outreach. Absolutely, absolutely. We have uh, we even have a program around it. It's called Empowered to Serve, where we work to engage the faith communities in building uh, sustainable cultures of health. And um, it can be your members can become ambassadors where they help the church to um, to actually implement health activities, or your church can just become a member itself overall. 
And we have resources, free resources that um, the churches can receive online. We also have health lessons. The health lessons, it's, it's four health lessons that are part of that program that include healthy living, uh, blood pressure control and management, tobacco free, and as well as uh, CPR. So um, all of that is about preventative care of yourself as well as how to save a life and those are things that we find in our multicultural communities that are not there and I'm just still surprised in in working in this position for almost five years how I go to communities and they don't know this they don't know it at all and um, so that's where we have a wealth of resources around assisting these uh, communities. I know there's a lot of interest out there uh, in folks to work with the multicultural minority communities. And there are a lot of, um, I think, well-intended organizations that might be at a smaller size that, you know, have amazing programs. Absolutely. But maybe they don't have, they just don't have the ability to hire, you know, a lot of different people to represent every different type of minority group to be the, the look like me, understand mm-hmm. what's going on. How would you, how would you recommend that these types of organizations engage and gain the trust of a different diverse population without having that person who may actually be of that background? Um, you can actually, if you have a board, mm-hmm. if your organization has like a board of directors, mm-hmm. you that's a great way to start because a lot of those board members are your key community leaders mm-hmm. who have connections right. or should have connections to, you know, community-wide. Mm-hmm. They can assist you with that if you have committees mm-hmm. um, that assist you with, I know, a lot of small organization. And to me, this seems to be very trendy um, that a lot of organizations have conferences, mm-hmm. events, right. at least once a year. And then that's another way to bring people to the table from those communities that you work with. And you right. want to always look to see, you know, who is that lead person. Sort of and, help them to help plan, you know, have them have a stake exactly, in the actual Exactly, exactly. Have exactly. those community mm-hmm. le- leaders to be a, be a part of your mm-hmm. your board if you can, or just make it be a subcommittee of your board. Mm-hmm. And then that, that helps greatly. You want to choose people who are... Um, key leaders in that community, people who uh, people will listen to, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a pastor or it could be somebody who they know is a nurse or, the, but just somebody who everybody will just listen to and I have to think about it. So if you were able to wave a magic wand, what would you suggest to our community leaders as a whole, government representatives, that so, sort of thing, to better engage the different groups so that we can better educate folks on public health and education? Um what do they need to do differently to provide access? I think the, the thing that they need to do differently, all of us need to um, reach, I mentioned right, meeting people where they are. And pretty much where people are is that local community level. Which is and very labor intensive <laughs> for organizations that are mean right. and lean. So that's, uh, that's right. a tricky thing. Right, it's tricky. So for some leaders, you can stay here at the top and say, I'm just going to look down and I'm not going to. But no, learning about what is out there, what what people go through day after day, through what we call like social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be your your income, your race, ethnicity, all of that. Learning learning what people go through when it comes to that, um, and trying to be healthy and just live a better life. It's about your your quality of life is what it is. You know, you don't want to live with a condition and not feel good every day. But when those leaders, those top leaders who are our decision makers can know what just general people have to go through every day and learn about that and from there make decisions that would just be like that would be just huge because when you have leaders on different levels and leaders who say I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna even 
go to that level. I don't want to know. know about They're not it. in the trenches. Hear. They don't know. And exactly. it's, and it's in easy. The trenches is what <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. Just learn about leaders, learning about what happens in the trenches mm-hmm. would just be huge because that's where we can make an impact. For sure. We're speaking with Linda King. She's the Director of Community and Multicultural Health Initiatives for the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. We're going to keep her in our trench right now. We're also going to add another (laughs) guest as well. And we're going to do that in just a bit. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. I'm Jason Kong, Nicole Bruno alongside me, Cooper Linton as well. Uh, our returning guest, Linda King, she's the Director of Community and Multicultural Health Initiatives for both the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. And Cooper, uh, we put together these programs, and I don't know whether it's you or whether it's Nicole, but uh, we, we've struck gold today. We've had we're bringing in a basically what's going to be a dynamic duo of guests here Absolutely on the program. We are. And I, every now and then I get a chance to bring on a colleague of mine on this show who I every day call Apollo, but actually we're going to introduce her today as Dr. Stevens. Uh, Apollo Stevens, Dr. Apollo Stevens is the director of the hospice home for Transitions Life Care. And we can talk more about that later in the show. Uh, but Apollo came to this work in her doctorate through some very specific uh, research that she did with respect to ethnicity and access to care. And so I thought we would start there to tie into what we, we just covered with Ms. King. Um, and I, can you tell us a little bit about this doctorate, I, other than the fact that it came from the University of Alabama? And that's right. I said that clearly, folks, as a, as a, as a um, proud son of that state. Um, we can we can roll a little tide around here if we can, but I understand that's not your only collegiate loyalty, Apollo. No, and I, I will say roll tide. I'll start out by saying roll tide, but my education started at the Ohio State University <laughs> in Columbus, Ohio, and then went from there to the University of Dayton for my master's degree and then have landed at um, landed in Alabama with with Cooper and have landed with good people. So I'm I'm glad about that. So we first love time our I've North heard Cooper and good people <laughs> together. <laughs> we love the North Carolina schools as well. Does that make me chop liver hay? <laughs> Come on now. Jeez, I think I should just exit. <laughs> We're glad you're here, Nicole. <laughs> but so, my background um uh, it's fascinating to me how when you bring people together you find out that you have far more in common than you may have um, different. And Linda's background in community outreach mirrors mine. I'm one of the original founders of um, the Ohio Association of Free Clinics. And so um, founded a not-for-profit organization, founded a free clinic, and our focus was community outreach. And so um, the first free clinic was in a church. So you talk about using the churches to reach out, and that's my passion, and that's been my focus, because the church has long been the leader in the community for social services, and especially for African Americans, because 
the civil rights movement was birthed out of the church. And so that's why we continue to see that pastors and that African-American church are often the inroad for things like health concerns and prostate exams and all of that. Um, but my background, the, the reason for my research in African-American access to hospice, um, it comes from a personal experience. The, U, the year 2006 was a very challenging year for me. In January of 2006, my dad died. In May of 2006, my stepmother died. And in June of 2006, my husband died. Two out of those three received care under hospice. My dad refused hospice care, and I had the distinct, um, I don't even know what to call it, but I literally found my dad dead at home by himself. And he had been in that, he had been by himself uh, deceased for three days. And this was not what I had wanted for my dad. I had worked in hospice many years prior to that, had encouraged him to receive hospice care, but he had a lot he had a lot of the myths um, associated with hospice that were in his head and in his spirit, and so he refused and it was such a challenging time for my sisters and I trying to manage his care without the support of hospice and so um, after those experiences, two very good experiences and the one that was not so good with my dad, it, had, it became my passion to reach out to African Americans and to help them, help them help us, because I'm African American, help us understand better the benefits of hospice services. And because you won't say this yourself, you have extended this beyond the Triangle region of North Carolina and beyond North Carolina and have worked at the national level with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I am on the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization's Diversity Advisory Council, and our express goal is to reach every person that lives in the United States, every person, with the hospice message. Um, We've been pretty good at getting the message out to European Americans about hospice. And 80% of European Americans will use hospice at some point in time. With minorities, those numbers are not so good. Um, Particularly for African Americans across the nation, only 10% of African Americans will access hospice care. Can you can you say that again? We're, we're talking 80% for European Americans. 80% Caucasians. for Caucasian Americans, European Americans, um, 80%. Versus? Versus 10% for African Americans. That distinction is powerful. I mean, that that is a that is not a statistical abnormality. That is a total cultural disconnect from one group to another on their access and acceptance of care. Exactly. This is this is not math. This is 
total cultural behavior. It is it is it is culturally driven yeah. and it's based on cultural experience as well. Linda, has the American Heart Association and Stroke Association found something similar in getting the word out about heart health as well as far as, you know, reaching the different groups? Is it much easier to reach the Caucasian or European Americans versus minority groups? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We find that with minority um, groups, the uh, percentages when it comes to heart attack, when it comes to stroke, those are much higher for the minority groups as opposed to the Caucasian groups. Um, all of the stats show us that high blood pressure, same thing there. Uh, physical activity, same thing there. And the thing that you mentioned, um, Dr. Apollo, if I can call you that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. But um, the stats you just mentioned, that's a huge health disparity Absolutely. in hospice, Absolutely. in hospice care. And, um, and if you think about it, um, it goes hand in hand because a lot of our minority community members who have strokes, and, and that's where you're going to see. Um, we, May is Stroke Month for us, and um, that's where we actually do our work to increase stroke awareness, and African Americans suffer from that at a disproportionate rate, and strokes can be prevented by 80%. They're 80% preventable, and we see those uh, more so more prevalent among the African American community, and you could go from a stroke to hospice care. If, and so that's um, one of the things there that where we connect, that can easily happen because we do see in the minority community, I was just reading an article last night, how with minority women, um, after a stroke, their health goes down, uh, starts to decline. We have so many ways that we can help you, um, you know, do better with that and you can get back to where you were as far as, you know, your health, where better your health actually. But um Every article that I've read around minorities and stroke, African Americans are like number one when it comes to you know being at a disproportionate rate for that, and so and, and you can end up in hospice care. And there's something we can do about it. I mean, the reality of it is this status quo is not something we have to accept as unchanging. And I, um, I hope we can explore more of that. Um, yeah, but absolutely, I think this is a critical piece that we understand that these are not things that we have to accept as the way they are. They are shaped to become this way, and we have the ability to shape them to improve them moving forward. Yeah, and that's that's our task and something that we hope to do. Linda King, thank you so much for joining us this evening. She is the director and uh, the director of community and multicultural health initiatives for the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Apollo Stevens in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care right here on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find more about them online at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong. The man who's not full of angles, Cooper Linton, is uh, is here with us. Nicole Bruno as well. 
representing Transitions Guiding Lights. Our guest this segment, uh, we're, we, we held her over, Dr. Apollo Stevens and Cooper. Uh, our, our subject tonight has been minority outreach and access to care. And uh, Dr. Stevens has just a, a, an easy job. It's a cakewalk, no big – no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> Quite we heard, the challenge. We heard some statistics last segment that are, are flooring. Well, I think we and we need to delve into that a little further because the access and health disparities related to ethnicity are particularly poignant in the latter phases of life. And and that was uh, – Apollo touched on that when she was – and I want to reiterate those statistics that among your European Americans or more commonly known as our Caucasian group, we have an 80 percent essentially acceptance and utilization of hospice in stark contrast – to a 10% penetration rate and utilization among African Americans. And the reality is we're all dying. We have a 100% mortality rate. So that's one statistic that we are not going to change. But we need to talk about how we can address the fact that there are people who need care, who need access to better care, who simply are not getting it. And I don't know, can we just jump off at that point? Absolutely. And I was sharing with uh, Linda during the break and because of the work that we do, she and I are both um, very much into data and statistics in order to get measurements so that we're just not talking off the cuff. And one of the studies that um, formed the basis of my research study was uh, reported that for patients, Medicare recipients, for Medicare recipients, the African-American Medicare recipients received most of their health care in the last six months of their life versus the entire course of their life, those last six months marked the majority of the health care that they received. So folks are waiting, some folks, some mm-hmm. community, you know, community groups are waiting until the end of life to bump up that health care. So outreach... Um, The challenge with outreach is the stigma associated with hospice care. This country has a wonderful history. There's some pieces of it, though, that were not so good for certain segments of the population. Some of that's been in the news this past week. Some of it indeed has. And part of the historical data includes um, Tuskegee Experiment where African-Americans were injected, you know, were were not treated for syphilis Mm -hmm. when they should have been. Older Americans remember that. Well, that experiment went on for pushing 40 years, if I recall. It went on for a long time. The experiment actually uh, actually, um, was into the 1970s. It was around for much longer than most folks, and I mean, and most Americans are shocked. Well, it's in most of our memories. This is is not someone else's experience shared with us. We remember the 1970s. I know some of our younger listeners aren't, but those of us that are not our – I'm no longer – I'm not a millennial, let's put it that way. Um, Have that. We know that time period. Exactly. And so there are – there's something – it's called – it's where generations pass down information and what – People talk about those things and mistrust. We talked about, started out our conversation today talking about trust. And mistrust 
can be passed down of, well, we don't know exactly what your motive is. Um, you don't necessarily want to provide health care for us, so that's probably why you're shifting us over to hospice care. Um, you know, we deserve the same care that everyone else gets. Um, no, I don't want to give up on mom right now, or no, I don't want to give up on dad right now. And so there's a tendency, it, it occurs in European Americans as well, seeking that last treatment, or is, is it possible that there's one more, you know, chemotherapeutic drug or one more um, trial medication that might help? But particularly for African Americans, there's a sense of so much denial of healthcare opportunities. So at end of life, it's no, we're not going to be denied an opportunity to seek out health care. But then there's also the piece of faith. Yes, that's what I was going to say. There's a tremendous, and I'm a health care professional, I'm a hospice professional, but I'm also a pastor's wife. And so there is a tremendous faith component. And yes, we believe a good number of African Americans believe it's not over until God says it's over. It could be a miracle, or you're using the hand of God to put people on hospice. And why is that my place to do that? I've heard that a lot. Exactly. Across every type, but depending on how very religious people are, they might feel like hospice is not really something that should be given because it's not doing everything. And that <laughs> belief crosses many cultures, yes. not just African American right. sure cultures. Does. There's uh, spirituality, um, religious beliefs, prayer. Um, there are many cultures, not, and, and as, as I said, not just African-American, who believe that prayer has the power to turn any and every situation around. And so putting hospice within the context of those kinds of beliefs requires the hospice professional to be able to mesh spirituality with the hospice philosophy. So that an acceptance of mortality does not indicate an absence of faith or trust in God. Exactly. We know we're going to die. Anyone that's a Bible believer, the scripture says it is appointed unto man wants to die. But so people know that they're going to die. But a good number of minority groups, and I say minority groups because the numbers are growing and it's not going to be long before the European Americans will be the minority, the minority group. Well, the town I live in is the town I, I, li- I reside in Durham and Durham is a minority majority town. And so this is not some sort of futuristic thing. This is the present. We have in that community, there are more minorities than there are Caucasians. Period. Caucasian is still the largest single ethnic group in Durham County, but it does not represent 50% or more of the county. It's just factually not the case. And that is the, that's the face that, that's the face of America. Mm -hmm. Um, This country has been built on the concept, you know, bring us the Statue of Liberty, bring us, bring us. And so America has embraced a lot of cultures and unless you're Native American, all of us 
come from somewhere else <laughs> unless you're Native American. We are all imports except exactly. for the Native Americans. That's true. And so it's imperative to to have a global perspective on health care and access to care. Very good. Uh, Dr. Apollo Stevens, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate you taking the time and uh, for sharing uh, what you do in the community because that's, uh, that's a big challenge that you have on your shoulders. Yeah. And, uh, and Nicole, we, uh, we wrapped up some, uh, uh, the first half of our Caregiver Summit. Oh, yeah, we're coming hot off of those. I'm still tired. <laughs> well, we're, coming we're, in hot. <laughs> we're giving Don't you, ask me too much. We're giving you a break for a okay. few weeks. I, I think you've earned it. You know, I've talked to a few people. <laughs> they said you've earned it, uh-huh. uh, but we've we've got some more coming up in August, right? Yeah, my niece said she came up from New York, came down from New York, and she was that one. She goes, now I know why you were pulling your hair out of your head for the week I saw you. I said, yeah, <laughs> now you've seen it. <laughs> but yes, yes, we just completed the Raleigh and Durham Caregiver Summits. They were an amazing success. We are super excited to have those again this year. And coming up on the final two, so on uh, August 22nd, we will be holding a Caregiver Summit in Chapel Hill to reach out specifically to our Orange and Chatham County residents. But, of course, anybody from the listening area is welcome to come. And then we'll be doing one also the very beginning of October in Harnett County. Different topics, too. So if you were there, these are all different agendas depending on which uh, event you attend. Worth it to go again. You can find more information at caregiversummit.org. Highly recommend that you register early. These, These things get packed. And oh, they yeah. get filled up pretty quick. So if you think you may have even a, a, a remote usefulness for this, please go to caregiversummit.org and register now. Would like to thank our guests this evening, Dr. Apollo Stevens and Linda King, the uh, Director of Community and Multicultural Health Initiatives for the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. If you missed any of this program, you can go online to WPTF.com. You can find the full show there under the Aging Matters section. Hope you'll join us again next Saturday evening as well. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care, right here on News Radio 680 WPTF. <laughs>